Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Ram Power Days is going on now with our most powerful lineup of trucks ever. Hurry in and don't just feel the power, own it. Right now, get 2.9% financing for 72 months on the 2022 Ram 1500 Bighorn Crew Cab. Don't miss this great offer. 2.9% APR financing for 72 months equals 15.15 per month per 1,000 financed for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital regardless of down payment. Not all buyers will qualify. See dealer for details. Offer ends 10-31-2022. This is Karen with NewClevelandRadio.net, and it is time for Avoid the Maze. Most of us are living in a huge maze right now, and especially as we age. And that's why Kathy Lerner has put together this podcast to help us get through that maze and not get lost. So welcome, Kathy. How are you? Good. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about who you are and why, why there is such a maze. Well, I have a background as a medical social worker. I was a medical social worker for many years, working in hospitals in all aspects of medical care, you know, rehab, um, prep med surge, basically pretty much every area in the hospital. And then I realized that, you know, as a social worker in the hospital, you do a lot of discharge planning and you help the person to have everything they need when they go home. But after people leave the hospital, when they're not no longer, when they're no longer in the hospital, what kinds of services do they have access to? They do not have a social worker assigned to them as they do when they're in the hospital to make sure that their post-surgery needs are met or post-hospital care needs are met. So then I realized that there was an area called geriatric case management which you did outside of the hospital. Care managers manage people's care for them, but they can also do every type of thing. They can do consultation. They can help them with issues around um, finding care when they get out of the home. This is all done in the hospital when someone's a patient getting ready for them to leave. So I became a care manager. And now I am a certified geriatric care manager. I have a master's degree in social work and many years experience now as a geriatric care manager. So, well, I'm so grateful for individuals like yourself because not only are each of us getting older, we have parents and relatives and there comes a time that they need something that we can't provide for them. So it's your job from what I understand to at least guide us, correct? Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. yes. And families hire a care manager for any number of things. Very often uh, topic of the podcast today, people don't know whether their loved one needs care at home, but they think they might. They're starting to notice things. So they think their loved one may not be safe at home. And that's a time when a care manager is called in. And then of course, I would look to somebody like Tanner. So I would like to introduce Tanner now. Tanner has a really interesting background. He started, he has um, had leadership positions in the financial business. And then he decided that he wanted to do something to help people who have what he calls laid the foundation for the type of life that we're living now, which I thought was just so well said. And he has kind of a spiritual aspect of his work. He is the president of Loving Home Care, which provides professional in-home care services to clients. Um, And he also is a certified dementia practitioner and a certified Alzheimer's and dementia disease course trainer, which you can't imagine how valuable this is as a care manager when you're trying to, you know, educate people on what dementia is, the various stages of dementia, caregivers on how to care for people with dementia, 
this is really, really important. So Tanner brings all of this to his position. So that's why I was so happy that he agreed to be a guest today. And today we thought we talked about, we talk about first, how do people know when their loved one might need care? There's so many things that come up. You notice, you know, let's say you start to notice they're having difficulty with the, what we call the activities of daily living, which are bathing, dressing, toileting, eating, getting food for themselves, transferring, getting from sit to stand, having difficulty with those things. You start to notice they have some memory issues. Maybe they're not paying their bills as they used to. You see a change in their personality. Personality change is even a slight personality change can often be the first sign in an older person of having some cognitive issues. And of course, along with all the reasons that you might see that people are in need of care, there's also how do you get them to agree to care, which is really a challenge. So that's what I thought we might discuss today and, um, you know, hopefully get some questions from the listeners that we can address because these are very common issues. And Tanner, what, what would you have to, to add to that? And you must yeah. see a lot of resistance in your business because you go right into the home. What Tanner does is he goes into the home and when he gets a client, he does his own, they do their own assessment and see you know, what level of care the person is at, assess their needs and where the needs care should be focused what their need, based on what their needs are. So he's right in there in the home. We make the recommendations, but he's right there when they're either accepting it or resisting it. Well, yeah, thank you, Kathy. And I would imagine that many of our questions will have to do with that last component of how can I winsomely, persuasively, you know, encourage people I love so much to receive help that they just, they're not living in the same reality of recognizing that they need the help. Um, maybe to your point about seeing this on a regular basis, uh, just Monday, we're here at Thursday. I was on the, um, reached out to one of the families that we just started helping a few weeks ago. And I had helped arrange uh, for them to receive a special grant for them to receive home care for several months. They didn't have to pay for the service. And the lady we cared for was calling saying, I don't want care anymore. I like my me time. I want to be all by myself. Yeah. And yet yeah. her adult, um, she lives in a back house um, from her daughter and son-in-law. So it's great that they have family close together, but the daughter-in-law just says, my mom is constantly grabbing things, the furniture to keep herself from falling all the time. She will not use her walker. It gives me incredible peace of mind, even though I'm just 25 feet away in a couple walls, to know that somebody is there with my mom as she moves around in her house. She doesn't even you know, go out to do a lot of different things, but she said for me to at least turn the switch off that I don't have to go check in on her. I don't have to you know, be the one trying to supervise or worry. Just the cortisone levels and the stress goes down so much for the daughter. Yet mom is, I'm fine. I haven't, haven't broken a bone yet. So let's just keep rolling the dice. So yeah, it can be, be very challenging. Well, speaking um, of breaking a bone, I was just going to say, very often it takes a crisis for somebody to realize that they want care, that they need care. And the biggest challenge is to catch these things before they happen. But I'm sure you know very often, they'll wait for the crisis. You know, that's in social work, you learn that crisis theory that nothing changes until there's a crisis. And you see that all the time of people are so much more, they don't wanna do anything preventively. They have to wait for something to happen. And sometimes you even have to tell families that if they're that resistant, there's nothing you can do. They, I mean, I've actually had a client close the garage door on a caregiver as she kicked her out. She wasn't out the door yet. <laughs> Just kicked her out. She closes the garage door, you know, on her. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can see there is definite resistance. Not an uncommon experience at all. <clears throat> no, that's very true. Um, and even just another component, um, uh, Kathy, I know you and I first got connected through a mutual nonprofit that we're a part of called the Foundation for Senior Services. And this group seeks to um, provide community education to seniors, to their loved ones. And I mean, this organization has been around for a while and uh, still to get people to show up to different webinars um, and webinars, it's a pretty low degree of commitment to join. Um, but whether there it's about um, 
how to properly ensure that your financial situation is in order for end of life components. What do I need to know about Medicare? How do I know it's time that my loved one needs help um, at home or it might be time to consider moving to, hey, how do I ensure that I can help my mom or dad pursue the greatest emotional um, you know, well-being? Like the topics are all over the map but still getting people from the community to sign up and to learn is such a challenge because exactly what you said, it's crisis that drives people to these elements and the, the road ahead is only so much more difficult if somebody in their 90th or 100th decade of life um, is now recovering from some kind of trauma or injury. Um, everything else can, can, I'm not gonna say I have a crystal ball because sometimes people impress you, but can just get significantly more painful, uncomfortable, burdensome for the family, expensive as well. And I think all of us in the senior care profession only want to prevent that as much as possible for people. Um, but it is often crisis that moves people into making those decisions. Um, but I don't think it's, it stops us from trying to make those efforts, from trying to circulate flyers through local service clubs, through local churches, to partner with hospitals, because uh, we want to be part of a solution. And perhaps there will be a time. I mean, think about think about other movements in social change that, that change, right? I mean, smoking was encouraged and great, and now it doesn't have the same, you know, sort of stigma. Maybe over time, people will realize that, you know what, I, I don't feel I feel incomplete or I don't feel fully responsible if I don't haven't had the conversations and me and my aging parents don't have these plans in place. I'm certainly praying yeah. that, you know, we kind of move towards that, but we've got a ways to go as a, as a, at least an American society to get there. Well, what if, I'm just curious, what have you seen in your business where when people call for care, is it usually after the accident has happened already or is it as a preventive? Because yeah, I'm just wondering. Yeah, what you it's it's very from. frequently. Yeah, so I, I was, um, you know, just giving a webinar a couple of weeks ago, and you know, if I kind of boiled down, um, what are the, what are kind of the four like kind of life events that normally that either should or do move people towards at least some sort of um, change? It could be what an organization like Loving Home Care does in providing caregivers. It could be a transition to a new living situation. It could be a slew of other services that come together to meet the needs. But what are the things that trigger that? The number one thing is a critical or sudden change in one's health. And hopefully it's not a very devastating one. And this could be a chronic condition that has just significantly worsened. Uh, an example of that might be, like you referenced earlier, Kathy, like dementia or cognitive impairment. Or it could be an acute situation. Somebody does have a fall that results in some kind of fracture to the hip or you know, a break in an arm or whatever that may be. You really can't get avoid your life being different, at least during that season of recovery. The second would be when one is becoming a danger to oneself. Um, this can be, again, because like physical capabilities are reducing or cognitive and um, personal responsibility elements are changing. Um, one thing with cognitive impairment, which is would include dementia and Alzheimer's and things of that nature that people don't think about often. And this was me. This was me back when I was, um, you know, a banker. And before I moved into this space is, oh, that just means people start forgetting something. So what does that look like? That looks like they still can't do finances. Relationally, it becomes challenging if you can't remember people that you love, but your brain is responsible for so much more. It can result in lack of balance that does result in a likelihood of falls spatial judgment. Um, if, if we have people that are out there driving uh, that have different types of dementia and they're at the intersection and they're looking left and right and they're judging the speed and the space between them and oncoming traffic. I mean, there's not just, you know, their life. And then here's the third component when other people's lives could be at risk because of changes that are taking place. Oh, um, yeah. and, then, and then lastly is also um, maybe, maybe there's not an immediate threat, but the family or loved ones who are providing the care for that person, if it's not sustainable for them to continue going on bearing the current load that they're bearing. And I would say other than an acute change in their health condition, that's the, the other main reason when at least I end up connecting with families is it's that caregiver saying, okay, I thought I could keep going this way, but I just cannot. My stress is too high. Um, my health is declining. Um, some of the statistics that are out there that are that survey spouses that take care of their spouse who does have the poor health, 
is that it's a very high percentage where the assisting partner actually passes before their, yes. their sick or injured um, loved one because they're bearing all of this. Um, and it results in their own um, heart or other challenges from bearing all this. And when them, they themselves are late in life and their bodies are not as strong as they used to be. Um, and that is kind of the situation I gave with this woman, even denying free care is, is the most difficult one. You've got one party saying, I need help. I love you. I am not leaving you. Um, but uh, to have the other person say, I recognize that and I'm willing to have some adjustments to my life. And, and you know this too, Kathy, I'm sure, and I'll let you speak to this, but the family caregiver bearing all that stress also often does not raise their hand and say, I need some help because mm -hmm. they feel a sense of responsibility could be from cultural backgrounds, religious backgrounds, just even personality um, uh, that where they have a bunch of I oughts in their belief system. And what's not there is an I ought to ask for help for myself. And I'm still involved. I'm still the primary person responsible for loving and caring for this person, but I need to carve some type of boundaries so that I can make it for the long term. So I can even be here to keep loving yeah. and caring for them. And many people just have blinders to that. And um, you get into survival mode and they, you, don't, you forget that life can, can be different. You can have breaks um, and you can have a different mentality than just one day repeating like a groundhog's day, like the, the stress of everything that took place the day before. Well, yeah, I read a very upsetting statistic that 30%, to speak to your point, 30% of people who are family caregivers pass away before the person they're caring for, which is just incredibly high. So obviously, you know, being a family caregiver is incredibly stressful. A huge amount of them are still working. They're working at their full-time jobs or they have other children that they're caring for. They're in that, what they call the sandwich generation, which is, there's no question. I mean, it's one of the most stressful things that you can do is to be a family caregiver because it also financially, it takes a huge toll on your own finances. You're putting out money for co-payments for, you know, but then we get into the other point. Okay, let's say you see that your family member needs care. How do you pay for it? Home care these days is incredibly high because there are new laws that were passed that they have to follow the IR, you know, they have to be paid minimum wage. A home care through an agency is what would you say, Tanner, between 25 and 30 an hour, depending? I would say that's a pretty good ballpark. Uh, there are certainly some that go above that. There's some that might be a little below that, but they'll, they'll be pretty difficult to find. But that is, that's the ballpark that I'm typically telling families about 25 to 35. Most, um, most communities, uh, yeah, probably like 25 to you know, low 30s. Absolutely. You're right on. So if you're a working family and you have a loved one who needs care, how many really do you see certain levels of, in society that can, they can't even think about hiring care at that amount? at that price. It's, it's really, really hard. You know, most people don't have that, that type of extra money and it's paid for. Sure. If you have long-term care insurance, uh, it's covered. If you have, you know, you have, otherwise you have to pay out of pocket. I was interested, Tanner, you said you got a grant. Um, mm -hmm. How did that person get a grant to cover the care? Great what question. Yeah. And it, it takes, um, this is where someone like um, a Kathy um, a geriatric care manager or someone who understands the social components, they're constantly casting out lines to find all these resources so they can connect families to do that um, to these resources without families getting lost in Google and spending so much time and energy and you can get the solutions directly when you need them. Um, and I try to try to do the same. Obviously, much of my time is, is managing and delivering the outcomes with our team, but I always love getting these nuggets that I think could be helpful. So um, I'm not sure of the, the geographic scope of our podcast audience, um, but at least in California, uh, there is one respite award grant that I'm familiar with. Oh. It's through the California um, um, Family Caregiver Support Centers, uh -huh. I believe is the right title. Um, and so we're located here, Kathy and I, in Los Angeles County, and I also support Orange County. So there is uh, the local center for Los Angeles is actually out of the University of Southern California. They have what's called the Family Caregiver Support Center, and they offer many services. They offer therapeutic counseling. They offer support groups, 
and one of their services is a grant that's funded through either the state or the county that can provide typically somewhere between 50 to 100 hours of home care um, for someone in need. And it's designed to allow that family caregiver to have a break and they can use this in, in different ways. Perhaps they want a break four hours in the morning, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and they wanna spread this out over several months. Perhaps they've just been really wanting to go out of state to visit some other friends or family members and they wanna take it all in like you know a week or two segment. There's some flexibility with how that works. But that's what I found is, I mean, 100 hour, 112 hours, that's, that's a significant amount of help. Yes, um, and I wanted so, to ask, do they just give how many, how many do they give out? So they do have a limited budget um, because the funding does come from uh, the state and from the county. Um, I know just even recently, some of the additional families I was connected to that I introduced to them, their award was a little bit smaller in terms of hours because we're coming towards the end of their budget cycle. Um, so I don't know exactly what those figures are, but um, I would say it's always worth, worth a phone call. And something I found too is you know, if they, if they say we're towards the end of our budget cycle, don't just give up because I've also had families get contacted by the um, social workers at the family caregiver support center saying, Hey, we gave this award to two other, three other families and they didn't use it. And the budget cycle is going to end. So we're going to give it to you. Could you use this all in the last two months? So there always could be That's some opportunities. Yeah. I just want to say too for people. Oh, I'm sorry, Tanner, go ahead. I was just going to say, and uh, for any listeners in Orange County, the um, Orange County Fam Family Caregiver Support Center is connected with uh, St. Jude Hospital in Florton, um, and they have a, they, you know, these local operators, they do have some processes and procedures similarly, but getting a respite grant is also something you can get as an Orange County resident, and, and really this program is available, to my understanding, throughout almost all counties within California, so you can just look online, Family Caregiver Support Centers in California, and find the office that supports you. And I would say then that if anybody for wherever they're living contacts the area um, agency on aging, they could probably tell you that because that is throughout the country and they can talk to you about um, other respite care programs. I was just going to talk about a few, a couple others too. Uh, for v, uh, veterans who are, um, they've, they're veterans of war or their spouses, there is also a program where they can get some money for caregiving also. And they would apply through that through the CalVet or VA website, wherever they are. I think it's vets.gov or wherever they are, but that, that can help also with covering some of these costs. And here it's called Medi-Cal, but it might be Medicaid. I think it's Medicaid where you are, Karen. Yes. They also have an in-home support services program if the person is already on Medi-Cal, they are entitled to some hours also that would help pay for the in-home support for the care. And that can go either to the person who's providing the care, a family member, or they can hire an outside person to fill that role. And in California, which I'm sure they have in other states, there is California paid time off program where you can get six weeks off to care for um, a loved one who needs your care. They have to keep your job. And for at least six to seven weeks, I think you can get up to 70% of your income of your salary from that program. So those are things that, because otherwise the costs of care get very high. Uh, you can hire care independently. They call it an independent caregiver. And that is through, um, you can go to a website, which is all over the country called care.com. People, uh, prospective caregivers post their profile on there and they can be hired through there. You can also post a job on there if you're looking for a caregiver. And typically, uh, well, they do require that you pay minimum wage. So that would be what between 13 and 16 an hour, depending on where, probably closer to right, Tanner, like $13, $13 an hour minimum wage in California, right? I think yeah, we're at... Uh... Yeah, and, and many counties, many cities have higher amounts than that. But yeah, for California to be the case. But um, yeah, and I think families they want to they want to at least pay the minimum, right? You know, if, if this person is doing a, a great benefit, you want to you know you want them to be compensated for the blessing they're yes. giving to your family. And the the difference though, which is this is why it's so much better if you can afford a care agency, is that they take care of the taxes, 
they take care of workers' comp, if the caregiver should get injured in your home, you really have to have some protection. And now you do have to give them a wage statement. You have to follow all of the rules of the employment law in the state that the person is hired in, which is really hard. And from what I hear, the uh, IRS really will crack down on this, this under the table for the caregiver, at least in California, it's not that easy anymore. So if you can hire through an agency, that's always best. And let's say the caregiver gets sick, who's gonna replace them? With the agency, they will send a replacement if the person, you know, very often a person can't be alone at all. As a care manager, I've actually had to go over and take care of somebody. Mm. <laughs> the caregiver called at two in the morning. She said, and this was a private caregiver. She had to leave to go to the hospital because she felt like she was having a heart attack. So what could I do? There was no place to call. I had to go over and, you know, I slept on the couch with the cat for the rest of the night till the morning shift came in. <laughs> But, you know, people can't be alone. So this is why it's better if you have an agency and they can just step right in and get a replacement. This is if you hire independently, these are things that that don't work as well. I have a question for the two of you. So we know education is really important. And typically we're getting this education, like you said, Tanner, when there's an emergency. Okay. We are educated on childbirth when we're teenagers and we aren't educated on what's going to happen much after our children hit a certain age. So as parents, we don't know what's happening. Our parents haven't taught us and we assume that our parents are going to be, you know, healthy and solid until one day they're just going to go to sleep and not wake up. And we know that doesn't happen. So why aren't there more programs starting earlier in life? So as individuals, we can prepare for our own care that's going to come about. That's a really good point. Why don't they teach that in schools? Or at least, you know, you were mentioning about the sex education. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? But stay in stages of life, you know, because when I was first uh, going to graduate school, they said nobody wanted to study gerontology at that time because people were all, a lot of people were afraid. They don't want to go near it. They thought they don't want to see themselves as getting old. So most people took the track of either public policy or um, children and families. And there were very few students who wanted to go into gerontology at that time. Of course, this was like many years ago, but still, I mean, you don't want to, people don't want to see it. They don't, just like we were talking about age discrimination, people don't want to see themselves as that happening to them. But if that you're right, if that could be a part of education, you know, what happens when people get older? How do they care for themselves and how to plan for that? Yeah, Did I guess you see that in the business? I'm sorry, go ahead, Tanner. No, no, go ahead, Kathy. I was just going to say in the business world that you worked in, did you see people doing a little more planning? We must have seen a little more planning for the future. And then it's directed to me um, with my background in, in banking. Yeah. yeah um, it, it's, it's very similar. I mean, if people feel like they're investing either money or time in what feels like air to them. You know, they're, they're not as motivated when you can't see things as tangibly. So, um, I mean, even, you know, this is speaking to the world of people who operate as financial planners um, that, um, you know, they, they spend a lot of time trying to get people to think about their retirement, about who are you going to be responsible for at that age, your children, what you want to leave for them, your parents, and how you might contribute towards their care, and of course, your own. And it's always, and I, I can relate to this, you know, where I am in my stage of life, what always feels more pressing, it's what does my monthly budget look like today? Am I paying the bills that I want? Um, you know, what are the needs that my children have now? I want to put them in school. I want to put them in sports. Um, you know, people are almost always think I need to get a home, you know, because I, I want to latch that in. That's my, my goal today. And these things that seem like so much further down the road, people think they can play catch up on. And in some ways you do have a runway to get there. I mean, uh, you know, if you if your parents are in their 60s to early 70s, we never control life. Things can always happen unexpectedly. But by and large, many people are healthy in their 60s and 70s. You've got a, a number of years to 
you know, have the family conversation and get things, you know, planned out with an estate plan and advanced directive and even just everybody knowing how's this going to work um, if something were to happen negatively. Um, but I think it's just always the demand of the moment that really keeps people put out. And um, yeah, you know, it's, it's always funny, you know, if, if there's economic changes that would say cause people to do home loans, you know, or, or mortgage officers, their phones are always blowing off the hook because people want to get into what they want right now. But the financial advisors, man, it's a much longer road of building trust and trying to help people plan for their own best interest for what's coming down the road. I'm just curious, Tanner, in your business, how many of your clients pay by long-term care insurance? Good question. Um, we are a bit of a boutique uh, business, so we're not as large as some players that are out there. But for us, it's probably about somewhere between 25% to a third that pay with long-term care insurance. Um, and, and those families are very thankful. Um, oh, yeah. not, not all long-term care insurance policies are created equal, though. Um, mm -hmm. There are some that may um, exclude home care as part of what they can cover, um, and, and which is fine, you know, if it helps them when they go into some other sort of assisted living or board and care, that's fantastic. Some have much higher daily amounts that they'll pay, some have much lower. Um, and I was actually just talking with a gentleman with a major long-term care and insurance providing um, um, insurance company, and there's just many different ways they're changing it. Some will say, Here's your, the daily amount we'll pay. And the day you start, we'll pay up to that daily amount for X number of years, five years, six years, and then it's over. Um, some are more, you get a, a bucket of dollars. The benefit is X hundred of thousands of dollars. And you can just, once you start, there isn't a clock that's going, but you can use that up however you need to. So they're all different. So even in that space, ensuring you have a, a trusted um, person who knows all those options to know your situation um, and what the future may look like for you would be best to help navigate through through much of that. Yeah, because you know, not many companies I hear are still in the long-term care business. They're getting out of it because it was costing them so much money because so many people are taking advantage of it. So, you know, but it is a great way to get at least some of your needs covered if you, if you don't pay out of pocket. They say the wealthier people don't really have to worry as much about long-term care insurance because they can pay, of course, pay out of pocket. And then people who are lower income, they'll get their needs met through long-term Medicaid, long-term care, Medi-Cal. So it's the people in the middle that really need the insurance that are the most likely to not have it. Mm -hmm. But it, it really... Go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. And then I'll add the piece that I was going to No, no, please that. go ahead. Yeah. Um, I, I know my, my, uh, the times I have the microphone, I, I tend to talk a little long, but uh, if I could add one other piece, because um, yep. I know you were interested in asking about the, the grant for, for care earlier. Yep. If I, if this is under the same category of maybe best kept secrets or not very well known um, secrets that can help in this space of paying for care, um, different some states, California doesn't have one, but uh, there are some states that offer what are called home care plans, and they might, be, they might have some slightly different names, but they're slightly different than long-term care insurance, but they, they operate similarly, similar in the sense that once you sign up, you pay a monthly premium, and when you need home care, you give them a call and you access the benefit. Um, but these are different in different ways. First of all is they may not require the same medical qualification. One of the greatest challenges with long-term care insurance is that people wait too long to where now they don't qualify either because yeah. of their age or because they've developed some sort of chronic health condition that maybe they can live just fine now, but now you're diabetic. Um, okay, great. You'll, you can manage that. You can make your lifestyle changes, but that might kick you out from getting qualified for long-term care insurance. Not so with many of these home care plans. Um, so, or you might qualify, but you've waited to where now it's so expensive that it's yeah. just not even attainable. Well, these home care plans uh, don't have the same sort of health risk adjustments into their pricing. Um, but if your state doesn't have this, um, what I often introduce people to is a company called True Freedom. If you just search truefreedomhomecare.com, um, I believe you can find it. Um, and I'm, I've become pretty familiar uh, with them and their team. And um, uh, Karen, you could also, um, I, they, people could connect with me if they want to learn more about it. But it is a nationwide, so all 50 states home care plan. And, and oh. basically, 
from anywhere from $100 to $500 a month. Doesn't depend on how healthy you are. It's really just how much of a benefit do you want? Um, you could get access to anywhere from 1,500 hours to 10,000 hours of home care. And the cool thing there is that it's hours. So if you are paying for this, you mentioned, Kathy, it's $25 to $30, let's say, for home care today. Well, if you need home care seven years from now, we all know those rates are going to be higher. But you still get, say, 10,000 hours, whether it's at today's rates or tomorrow's rates. Um, and this particular company, um, you know, things can always happen. You know, you can never guarantee. But in their um, over 10 years of existence, they haven't raised their rate um, chart yet. Um, they've been able to kind of work with the actuary tables they had at the beginning, and they've seemed to work out pretty well. So uh, what does it take to qualify? You don't have to have a nursing exam. You don't need to provide, you know, urine and blood samples. The person you meet with just has to determine that you can take care of yourself 100% today. You don't have to drive. You might use a walker to get around, but if you were living by yourself, you could get your own food, do your own hygiene, dress yourself, all the ADLs that you mentioned earlier, um, Kathy, all these things can be taken care of by that person. Um, even if they're 90 years old and they can do that, they still can qualify. So just another option. So they have to be able to do those things at the time they apply, no matter what their age, right? That's exactly. amazing. Exactly, no matter okay. what their age. That is now, really interesting. Yeah. So, uh, so again, there's um, that, that's kind of the, it's the high level summary that I would have. And this can only help pay for caregivers to come help you in your home. This benefit can't be used to pay for the room and board at an assisted living community or something of that nature. So it's limited in terms of the type of, I guess, environment of care you can receive it. Um, but eight out of 10 people surveyed, according to surveys from AARP and other groups say they would like to remain in their home as long as possible. Mm -hmm. So um, just, just a resource for people to be aware yeah. of it. It might be helpful. Yeah. Also, another thing people do is re reverse mortgages. They'll often do that to help pay for home care or just taking a loan out from the bank if you mm -hmm. qualify, a home equity line of credit, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Those are all ways that you can pay for in-home care. Because it is so much, it, it seems to be better for people generally to stay in their home, especially these days. You know, when you being in a care facility, it's it's a lot it's a lot more difficult these days, especially with the pandemic. You can't really they're they're opening up a little bit now for visitors, but it's still very. I just got a call yesterday. I was going to visit a client in a nursing home who I had been seeing outside. She said, even though everybody had a vaccine there was a case of COVID in there. So they didn't want any of the residents to see anybody even outside, which is really upsetting. That's, a, that's another story, but you know, it, it does, it, it is better to, if you can stay home with the right amount of care. What do you think now that we've talked about, you know, the types of things that how to pay for the care and how to know when someone needs care, what do you do with people who are really resistant to care? And I've, documented a couple things that have helped in the past. One of them is having a family meeting, like an intervention for someone who has an alcohol problem. <laughs> the family gets together and they all tell the person how it is deeply affecting them, that the person is not having the care, you know, because once they see, you know, they're thinking of themselves, but they're you know, getting a sense of what it's like for the family to have to walk around with the anxiety and to worry. And after you've done that, there are other things you can do. One of them is starting slow, you know, starting with four hours a day. You, you can hire, right? Your agency does four hour day shifts. And also what I find helps is when people, people are so reluctant to hearing, oh, we really think you're, you know, you're not thinking as well. You're not as competent. Don't pre present it that way. That's very, very hard for people to hear, and they will resist that even more. If you couch it in the way that, you know, I think you could use some help in the home. Let somebody come in, help with cooking, laundry, these types of things. They will be more open to it. And caregivers can also do light housekeeping. You do that with your agency, right? Your right. caregivers do light housekeeping. So it's not just somebody who's going to sit and monitor them all day. Sometimes they think that somebody's going to hover over them and make sure they don't fall, make sure that, no, that's not the way it is. You know, there are many times that to instruct the caregiver, you know, keep your distance, stay in another room, 
it helps just to know they're there for the family if anything should happen. And, and at least that's the way they can get used to the idea because people are so reluctant to give up any independence or to be seen as incompetent that they can't do this any longer. So those are some of the things that I think, you know, they've helped for me with my clients because it's, it's really challenging, especially things like driving. That's so hard, especially for men. I, it's so hard for men to give up driving. Why is that Tanner? Tell us you're a man. <laughs> it's the symbol of independence and freedom. So uh, yeah. I think that's literally what it boils down to. And that, and that I think is probably also a uniquely American thing, right? So I mean, think- well, I guess I would say this. I mean, we, we associate turning, and this is even, I mean, going back to the generation we're talking about, right? Like World War II era and before, like you turn 16, you get your license, you know, freedom to ride. And that's a, a new chapter of your life that you're open to. But how many people that are 80, 90 year old, year old today, even in Europe, have, maybe they have their driver's license, but how many have cars? I mean, you live in cities that are more, more like a Manhattan, yeah. right? Where they're walkable yeah. or you take public transportation. And so a car isn't, um, it's not viewed as a right. Um, it's viewed as a privilege or something that'd be nice to have if you could afford $8 a gallon petrol, right? You know, out there. And <laughs> how much even more so um, other parts of the world and Asia, things of that nature, where you just have used other forms of transportation where we're so accustomed to that. And um, uh, I think that's maybe something that's a little bit more unique to, to our context. That's a good point, especially here in LA, where everything is the car, you know, if you don't have the car, you're like a nobody, you know. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, I wanted to share, I had a client who uh, the daughter was really concerned that they were still driving. And his answer was, well, I only go one way, meaning (laughs) (laughs) he'll only drive places where he can go in one direction, you know, so there's not as many cars coming, you know, if you have to make a turn or something. So that's how he was justifying being able to drive. Another thing is, I I just want to put this out there, that people can make anonymous reports to the DMV that somebody is not safe driving. It can be a family member. It can be anybody. So they are open to that. And you you can do that if you really feel someone is unsafe. Or you can have a doctor talk to the person about not driving. A lot of times, especially... people older than I am, which is getting up there, they feel that uh, if somebody else tells them, they, if the kids tell them, they're not interested, but it comes from an authority figure, they are more likely to go along with it because they're still afraid that, you know, what will happen? I don't want to get in trouble or whatever. So, but that is one of the hardest things in keeping people safe is getting them to realize that they can't drive any longer. No, I have another question. Most care caregivers, um, I'm not gonna say they wear a uniform, but they usually wear scrubs or something very similar. And I know for my mother, uh, cause she lived in independent living. When she saw somebody had a caregiver who was dressed in scrubs, it would bother my mother. And she would say, why do they have to dress that way? And I think sometimes as we get older, even though we know we need help, we don't want it to be so obvious. So why, why, are, why, why is it so important for them to wear scrubs? And I saw that when we hired people for my mom, that it was like, I could have cared less what they wore as long as they took care of mom and she felt comfortable with them. So is that- That's a good, really good point. I agree with you. I know if they're working in assisted living or hospitals, they do, you know, I have clients who have had a caregiver with them in the hospital because the family doesn't want them alone there and they can afford it. And they always come in scrubs because they want to be identified as somebody who's there on official business. But I totally agree with you. If somebody's coming to someone's home, why do they have to dress like they're, you know, I agree. What do you find, Tanner, in your business? Do your caregivers wear scrubs? Yeah, great question. And I, we get those requests a lot because you're right. People can feel demeaned if like I have this person attending to me. Am I weak? Am, am I sick? Is that what I'm telling the world? So uh, we do have a uniform polo shirt, um, which does say 
loving home care on it. Um, but we chose a polo shirt versus a scrub top as our official uniform because it's a, a little more flexible. Um, when we do an assessment with a family, um, if it's clear that that's going to be important, that they dress normal, that they look like a family member companion, done. You know, we let our care team know that, hey, as long as you meet our dress code in other ways, right? You got closed-toed shoes, you're dressing modestly, um, and we, uh, we do visits to ensure that that's the case, um, absolutely accommodate that. I mean, wh why have that be a barrier to care? Now, somebody who does need a level of care that might require a scrub top, as in the amount of washing and incontinence care and cleaning where um, the whole reason we have scrubs is so that your regular clothes don't get soiled and right. these sort of activities that make might make sense but then again that could be something they put on over when they do that activity and then take it off we want to minimize barriers to resistance as much as possible yeah that's that's a really good point so what happens to people who let's say they can't afford care in their home what what happens to them that's another topic that i think could be talked about here uh, they either go to assisted living or if they're at the level of care that they need a nursing home. Now, the, the thing is here in California and, and other states also is if you need a nursing home level of care, your care can be covered by programs, either Medicaid, Medi-Cal, long-term care. But if you need assisted living where you don't need a high level of care, high, that high of a level of care, it is out of pocket again. So a lot of times people will go to nursing homes that really could be cared for in a lower level of care, but they just can't afford it, which is really sad because there's a huge difference between a nursing home and an assisted living. Very often when you'll talk about assisted living, people think, oh, nursing home. They get those pictures of people languishing in the hallways, sitting in wheelchairs. That is not what an assisted living is. An assisted living is totally different, but that's the picture they have in their mind of an assisted living where the care is, you know, it's, it's much different. There are activities, it's more cheerful. You can come and go. Nursing homes, not so much can you come and go because the insurance looks at it as if you can leave, do you really need to be here? So it's a totally different experience. So I think people should realize that in between the nursing home and home care is the assisted living if they can afford it, mm -hmm. which is again, same issues. Go ahead, sorry. And, but people don't realize almost all of these assisted living communities that have been built, especially in the last 20 years, I mean, they're like Disneyland for adults in many ways. <laughs> like some of them, uh, I was just talking to um, one individual who visited one and said they have like just constantly like a, a, a cheese and like meat platter that's out there for the residents and guests oh, to yeah. go and enjoy. Many of them are decorated like the latest hotel in Vegas. I mean, they've got <laughs> high-end designers. They are really impressive and they're not all that way. And those that are that way can cost a little more, but, but even some ones that are modestly priced. Um, I just visited one that's uh, within an hour drive from here. Um, a friend of mine that um, I've introduced families looking for assisted living into, he just got a job there. And this place is, they're still finishing up the last couple of rooms. So there's still a few contractors on site finishing it. Uh, but for, um, less than $5,000 a month, which is, you know, kind of a lower affordable end for what this would look like. This place looks like an incredible hotel. Um, and they've got, from what I can tell, a pretty good staffing. There's still not a, a lot of people have to get moved in to know if they have the people component. And I think that's one thing that people also need to look into. The facility is nice, but depending on the situation, what you're really paying for are the people. The quality, are they attentive? Are they socially and relationally engaged with the people they're interacting with? Because that's actually going to, you know, it's not the color of the paint or the, you know, light fixtures that's going to have an impact on your loved one's health. It's what are the relationships in the environment going to be like? And you can't always get that assessment within a 20 minute tour for, through the facility where they're pointing out the remodeled bathroom and the great looking courtyard. Um, you really need to ask questions about the staff. What does staff development look like? What do activities look like? And not just what show me the activity calendar because they all have chair yoga and bingo and all these things but it's do these people look like they enjoy working here is there a culture in that place that's cultivating thriving i think that's one of the most important criteria people need to consider when they're looking at that option and it's um it can be a great option for people 
Yes, it can. And, you know, it's, would you say, how would you say the costs are, Tanner, in, in relation to home care? So you've 24 hour care in the home versus mm-hmm. assisted living. At least here in California, the typical range that I'm familiar with, with many of these assisted living communities is you have to understand there's a, what's kind of your, what's kind of your rent as a standard. And then you might need some additional services on top of that. Somebody needs to come remind you to take your medication several times a day. That would be an extra a la carte on top of it. And it goes on from there. Someone doing your laundry, you, you know, so it can go up, but typically, and you might know better Kathy, but I'd say you're probably typically from about 4,000, maybe a little bit less on the low end to um, 10, yeah. 12 might be the real highest, but I typically say yeah. about four to 10 is what that looks like, 1,000 mm-hmm. a month, mm-hmm. um, which is a good good chunk of change. I find that people, if they're needing more than about 40 to 50 hours a week of home care, you kind of start to get into that break-even sort of piece. Now, it isn't apples to oranges comparison. It's not apples to apples because again, you have one person completely dedicated to you as compared to you're really engaging with the other residents and staff. Hopefully they have, they live out the culture that's ideal that I talked about, but there's going to be one staff member for dozens of different residents. So those aren't the same thing, but you also don't have to know all continue to fill the fridge with groceries and ensure that that gets cooked. They normally have, you know, meals and, um, you know, options that are uh, diet appropriate for many of the medical conditions that older people can tend to have that's taken care of. So there's pros and, you know, you don't have to keep paying property tax and insurance on the home, you know, Um, uh, just there's other costs that are involved besides the hiring of a caregiver for someone to stay in their home. So, you know, you got to really pencil those things out. It's not an impossible comparison, but I'd say most of the time, if people need more than 50, 50 hours a week of care, you kind of start to hit that break even, and then you decide, all right, what environment is just ideal for us? What's going to cause less stress for um, the the loved one and the family around them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this has been, I, I hope that your listeners have found this helpful. Hi. I learned a lot. I, th- I think it's great to know about that grant program and also the planning program. Mm-hmm. You talked about for the long-term care. That's really, really important. Tanner, how can people reach you if they're interested in getting more information about your services here in California? Yeah, absolutely. So they can go to our website, which is lovinghomecareinc.com. Um, and I can also personally be reached um, by giving our office a call. I love being able to share, you know, whatever can be picked out of my mind to be a blessing to others. Um, that number is area code 562-448-3854. Um, and yeah, don't, don't hesitate to call. You know, if, if I or my staff um, are able to, to help at the moment, we'll get back to you and look to help. This is part of why we enjoy doing what we're doing. Yeah, you have a great staff. Every time I've called, they've been so nice and so helpful. Well, I'm so glad, Kathy, that you brought Tanner on today. Um, Yeah, it's been great. This is a subject that, as you both have said, we wait until it's an emergency to reach out and get information. And we hope this continuing podcast is going to be able to reach people to get the information they need for themselves and their loved ones early on uh, so that we're not in a panic and we can plan and prepare for the future. So thank you very much. And Kathy, thank you. We'll see you next month. Yeah. Thank Have you. A great day. Thanks. Thank you. Karen. Thank okay. you, Tam. Thank you, Karen. Bye. Thank you, Kathy. Bye-bye. Bye.